Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, Paul writes, But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Paul concludes the chapter with words of indictment and challenge and hope. Remember in chapter 10, Paul argues about God's righteousness. He argues about Israel's rejection. Paul has talked about the source of God's righteousness in verses 4 and 5. The availability of God's righteousness in verses 6 and 7. The scope of righteousness in verses 11 through 13. And how that righteousness is presented in verses 14 and 15. And remember, Paul has asked four questions. Number one, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The words call and believe are connected to one another. Number two, he asks, how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? Hearing is linked to a person. Not just any person. Someone speaks and someone else hears. Now this is interesting because the next question he says is, how shall they hear without a preacher? This speaks of the element of human agency that real people talk to one another. Calling requires believing, and believing requires hearing, and hearing requires telling. In one sense, the gospel is not self-discoverable. You don't just all of a sudden go, well, I'm wondering what's right or what's real or what's true. I, I, I wonder if there is good news about my spiritual condition. I wonder if there really is a God. I wonder if Jesus is really the Lord. Someone needs to tell you the truth. And it says in verse, and how shall they preach except they be sent? What could be more plain? Paul speaks of a supernatural divine authority where someone is sent. There's human assistance. Let him who's taught the word of God, the Bible says, teach the word of God. So there's this powerful chain reaction that Paul has already alluded to. Sending, which results in telling, which results in hearing, which results in believing, which results in calling, which results in hearing a message. And remember that saving faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. So Paul has presented the good news. God loves sinners. God wants to save them. The solution to the problem of sin is Jesus. And Paul knows that most people love good news. We love to hear news like, hey, I'm getting married. Or... We're having a baby, or my debt is gone, or the Broncos have won the Super Bowl. Yeah, that would have been great 
news if it were true. What's interesting to me is when the good news is about our family, when the good news is about entertainment, when the good news is about sports, we love to hear the good news. But what about the news of our salvation? What is it about our souls that cause us to doubt the gospel or refuse the gospel or reject the gospel? Remember, we've used a a sort of a plain definition of the meaning of salvation. Remember, if we use salvation in the broadest sense of of, of the word, it means to successfully deliver someone or something from impending danger. The word itself carries the idea of a fundamental implication that someone or something needs to be saved and that someone or something is willing to save that person. And so Paul is going to address objections. In verse 18, he says, but, this is the adversative in contrast to what's already been said, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed, their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world, in verse 18. But what of the excuse? They have not heard. Paul is asking, really, a question. So when he says, but I say, have they not heard? Is he talking about Jews? Or is he talking about Gentiles? Is he talking about both Jew and Gentile? Actually, it's not clear. I'm going to suggest to you that at minimum means Israel. That it could mean both Israel and the Gentiles. So Paul is in effect saying, does Israel have a plausible reason or persuasive excuse for the persistent neglect and the willful rejection of the gospel? Is this a simple case of not hearing the gospel and therefore not believing the gospel? And remember, your own life fell into that category. There was a time when perhaps you hadn't heard the gospel and then you did hear the gospel. And for some of you, you heard the gospel and you were filled with skepticism this can't be true that's crazy talk Paul is quoting Psalm chapter 19 verse 4 when he says yes indeed their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world the word translated sound in the original language, is very, very interesting. It occurs only here, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse, verse 7, where it's used to describe the notes or the sound that a musical instrument makes. And so we, we know about sound. You've probably heard things, voices or words or music, Here it seems to mean a voice. 
And the psalm that Paul quotes is the sound or the voice of nature speaking through the heavenly bodies or the voice of God as it's heard in nature. As a matter of fact, it probably wouldn't hurt us to turn to the book of Psalms. In chapter 19, I want to read it to you so that you somewhat understand the context of Paul's quote. In Psalm 19, verse 1, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard, their line. The Septuagint reads, their sound has gone out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. So Paul speaks of this in terms of of the revelation of God. Paul quotes Psalm 19.4. He's already pointed out that the gospel was meant to be heard. In verse 16. It was meant to be believed. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So Paul quotes that the sound of nature, God speaks in the celestial bodies. We sing a song, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. When the sun comes up, And when the sun goes high overhead, and when the sun sets, does the sun and the moon and the stars, do they have something to say? Paul is saying, guess what? The revelation of God in nature speaks to anyone who's willing to listen. If you woke up this morning and you are hearing this message and you're alive and you're not dead, you're just not, you're picking it up. Somewhere else. But if if you actually woke up this morning and if you actually saw the light, you're in the wrong place because the sun didn't come up this morning. I mean, the sun came up, but we didn't see it, did we? Most of the time, it comes up and we see it, except on dark and dreary days. Paul understands and applies the passage to the preaching of the gospel by which that time had reached all parts of the Roman world. And so when he quotes Psalm 19.4, he's pointed out that, that it's to be believed and obeyed and that Israel's excuse can't lie in the revelation or the proclamation. So when he says, but I say, have they not heard? If it's the Jews, then guess what? The Jewish people have been scattered all over the world. They have heard. They have the scriptures. They have the gospel. But whenever they went to look at the word of God, they would have begun to understand something. That there was a powerful prophetic statement that was made throughout the scripture. Israel's excuse can't lie in a lack of revelation or in a lack of proclamation. 
Psalm 19.1, like I said, begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, show his handiwork. The psalm continues with day unto day, utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Then verse 4, which he's quoting, Their line or their sound has gone out through all the earth, and their works to the end of the world. Paul is making the simple point that creation speaks a universal language to every nation. It may come as a shock and as a surprise to you. But the first time the question was asked, not about the heathen, but about the Gentiles in this sense. Jewish scholars, Jewish rabbis, Jewish ministers would get up and they would have a discussion with each other and it would go something like this. Do you think that the Gentiles are saved? What is God going to do with the Gentiles? God has given us the revelation of the law. God has given us the law of Moses. God has communicated to us. But what about the Gentiles? What has God, what has he said to the Gentiles? And the Jewish rabbis would argue that on the basis of God's revelation in in creation, every time the sun comes up, every time the sun goes down, everyone who looks out into the world understands that there is a God, that he has power and wisdom, that for the person who is willing to look, nature preaches a thousand sermons a day. And so... The first question was, can a Gentile be saved? And the Jewish rabbis came to the conclusion that if they looked at nature and if they examined their own conscience, that God in his divine revelation had given everyone enough understanding that they would at least understand the unity of God, the complexity of God, the goodness of God, and that they should turn from idolatry. The people of Israel, remember, were chosen by God to faithfully receive and preserve and communicate the word of God. The people of Israel were chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. And so when he quotes Psalm 19, the song of praise by David, the context is the revelation of the sun and the moon and the stars, their testimony to the glory of God. The theme of the psalm is God's revelation to man. God speaks in the skies, verses 1 through 6 in Psalm 19. He speaks in the scriptures, Psalm 19, 7 through 11. He speaks to the human soul, Psalm 19, verses 12 through 14. And so Paul is borrowing the language of the psalmist and he's applying it to his argument. In the Bible background commentary, Craig Keener suggests that Jewish teachers debated whether or not Gentiles could be saved Could they be held responsible for the truth? And so Paul is asking that same question. Who can be saved? Who is responsible for the truth? And so Paul understands that even in the Jewish diaspora, where the Jews were scattered throughout the Mediterranean area, They had the law. They had the prophets. They had every reason to believe that the scriptures were true. And so when people object to the gospel, 
When people who say, look, okay, I've heard the gospel, I've heard about Jesus, I heard about how he lived a perfect life, how he died on the cross, or, and how he rose from the dead. But what about people who've never heard? Paul invites you to answer their question. Maybe in a way that you wouldn't have anticipated. He would invite you to answer their question, well, what have they heard? What do they know? What are the minimum things that everyone already knows? Does everyone have access to the reality that if you live in creation that there's a creator? Yes. Everyone who lives in reality, who understands that there's such a thing as right and wrong, is it possible that people know what is right and they know what is wrong and they do what is wrong anyway? The answer is yes. Paul understands that we live in a beautiful world, but we also live in a broken world. And so Paul understands That everyone has a responsibility to act on what they know. And so did Israel really know? Look at verses 19 and 20. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. So when Paul says, but I say, did Israel not know? Again, look at the text and ask the text a question. Did Israel not know what? Did Israel not know what? That God was going to send a Messiah. Did did Israel know and does Israel know a Messiah is coming? Yes! Yes! Are there qualifications in order to be a Messiah? The answer is yes. Did Israel reject her Messiah, sadly? For the most part, yes. Did Israel not know that upon their rejection of the Messiah, that God would turn to the Gentiles and offer the gospel and the message of hope and the message of forgiveness and the message of reconciliation to himself? Here's Paul's answer. But I say, did Israel not know that in their rejection that God would embrace the Gentiles? He quotes Moses. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 31. He says, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. The Jews were warned, he says. Remember, he's anticipating the argument of the Jewish person who's reading the book of Romans who says, I'm a Jew. Okay? I believe in Moses. You do? You believe in Moses? Yes. Have you read Moses? Of course. Do you believe what Moses says? Of course. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. It's hard to understand and accept that God promised in the law. To provoke Israel to jealousy by another nation. What nation is that? 
It's the Gentiles. Paul is arguing that the call of the Gentiles by God and the rejection of the gospel by the Jews should come as no surprise. Their own scripture predicted this very thing. Both Moses and Isaiah predicted. Israel's stubborn refusal to obey God. Israel's rejection was not only willful and deliberate and obstinate, but it was also prophetic. The Lord predicted that this would happen. Paul knows the sad history of his own people, a pattern of willful, deliberate, persistent unbelief and disobedience that culminated in the rejection of the Messiah. And so Moses prophesied that Israel would reject God for that which wasn't God and that God would reject them for that which was not a people in order to provoke them to jealousy. Paul says, you can't claim ignorance of the scriptures. You can't claim that you didn't know the truth. And every single person who hears this message, who's opened up their Bible, every single human being who as a child grew up and you went to a Sunday school class, every single child who's ever heard a story about how God loves them and how Jesus loves them and how this wonderful person named Jesus came to the earth and he lived this wonderful life and he died on the cross for sin and he rose from the dead every single person who's ever heard that story can't claim well I had no idea they knew the truth Paul is saying you can't claim you didn't know the truth they knew the truth they had the example of the Gentiles turning to Jesus in large numbers in droves Paul quotes Moses, their hero. I'll provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. That is not the nation Israel. The stirrings of jealousy and envy were meant to help them embrace the gospel and embrace Christ. Because what was happening here is this Jesus who had shown up in time and space. This Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who was raised in Nazareth, who entered the temple, who opened blind eyes and deaf ears, who publicly was executed, who everyone understood had risen from the grave. And then a year went by and 10 years went by and 20 years went by and they went to Caesarea and Samaria and Gentile Roman soldiers got saved and Samaritan peoples got saved and they went north into Syria and the Syrians got saved. They went south into Egypt and the Egyptians got saved. An Ethiopian comes and he gets saved. They go into the modern area of Turkey, Phrygia, Phrygia and and um, and. Bithynia and Pisidia, they go across to Macedonia, they go down to Athens, and Corinthians are being saved, Gentiles, hundreds of them, and then thousands of them, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. They hear the gospel, they hear a story about a person who's willing to forgive their, of their sin and love them, and they get saved. And there's jealousy. And there's anger. 
Paul draws support for his argument not only from Deuteronomy 32.31 and Isaiah 65.51. Paul says, those who are not a nation, and then he refers to them as a foolish nation. And when he talks about not a nation and a foolish nation, he understands what every, gen- what every Jewish person is going to understand. In verse 20, he says, but Isaiah, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made known or made manifest or revealed to those who didn't ask for me. This is Isaiah chapter 65 verses 1 and 2. Where Isaiah predicts that the Gentiles would find God. That they would experience the real God, the true God of heaven. How can a group of people who weren't even looking for God find God? How could it be that God could make himself known to a people who didn't deliberately seek him out? When we look at the pagan world and when we look at the pagan Gentiles as a whole, they were steeped in idolatry. They were steeped in blasphemy. They were for the most part satisfied with wickedness and pagan worldview. Just like you. Some of you who never even grew up in a Christian home. You didn't have a mom and a dad who drug you to church. They didn't stick you in Sunday school. Many of you grew up maybe absent religion. Maybe you grew up, your religious tradition is you didn't even have a religious tradition. You didn't study the Bible. You didn't read the Bible. You didn't know the Bible. And then all of a sudden, there's a curiosity that wells up inside of you as you begin to say, what is all this stuff about the Bible? And what is all this stuff about Jesus? And what is all this stuff about love and grace and mercy and peace and forgiveness? And I'm wondering if this is some stuff that might be for me. And remember the the context of Paul, even as he quotes Isaiah. in, In Isaiah 64, right before 65 verses 1 and 2, The context is God's judgment on Israel. The Gentiles are accepted into God's plan of salvation in chapter 56, verses 3 through 8. And then the restoration of the remnant of Israel is predicted and prophesied in Isaiah chapter 65, verses 8 and 9. And so Paul is basically saying, Isn't it crazy? That the Bible has always been true. And that when the Bible predicts something, it happens. And Paul is saying to the religious Jew who happens to be reading the book of Romans that even their rejection is a part of the prophetic reality that God said would happen. Paul isn't afraid to answer Stubborn objections to the gospel, and neither should you. You shouldn't go crazy and have a meltdown. Everybody says, anytime someone says to you, Well, what about people who've never heard about Jesus? 
Uh-oh, oh no, the conversation's over. I don't know how to answer that. That can't be the way that you respond to objections. It's what happened to me. I remember before I ever got saved that the guy who led me to Christ, or the guy who took me to church anyway, I was asking him all kinds of questions. Are you going to tell me that every single Muslim is going to hell just because they don't believe in your Jesus? Are you telling me every single Hindu is going to hell because they don't believe in your Jesus? Are you going to tell me that every single Buddhist is going to hell because they don't believe in your Jesus? And the person kept driving, he just go, I don't know, man, but you'll see. The guy didn't know the answers to all of my objections. And you may not know all of the answers to all of the objections that might be presented to you. But make no mistake about it. I wasn't the very first person who asked that question. And I won't be the last person who asks that question. Remember every observant Jew reading the book of Romans. Is going to have an objection. How could Jesus possibly be the Messiah? If the Messiah is going to come and establish a kingdom, where's the kingdom? If the Messiah is going to come and put Israel in its proper place, then why is Israel not in her proper place? People aren't opposed to salvation. I think people really want an answer. To the problem of sin. And to the emptiness inside of their heart. I think people want to know. How can I have a right relationship with God? How can I live my life in a way that honors and pleases God? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood... Is no remission, unquote. Since salvation is always includes bloodshed. The observant Jew is asked, well, what do you do for the law's requirement of a blood sacrifice? You see, when Paul wrote these words, a temple still stood and sacrifice was still being made. But if you ask a Jew today, if you ask a Jewish person, hey, I understand that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. What do you as an observant Jew do about this problem, this stain, this problem? What do you do about the law's requirement of a blood sacrifice? You don't have a temple. You don't have a sacrifice. What do you do? I asked an observant Jew that question. In Israel. And their response was, God knows. God understands. God understands that we don't have a temple. You see, in, um, during the time of, of the Babylonian conquest, the Babylonians came in and they destroyed the temple and the Jews were dispersed and many of them wound up in Egypt and some wound up in Babylon. Many of them wound up far, far away from home. Did Judaism die? Did the plan of God die? Did the purposes of God die? Did God's plans and purposes for Israel die with the destruction of the Babylonian temple? I said, of course not. 
But I said, but how do you still deal with the problem of sin? The Jewish person responded, well, God understands that it's going to require a different kind of sacrifice. And I go, what kind of a sacrifice is that? He said, a sacrifice of the heart. And so I said, so you say that God understands that without a temple, there need not be a sacrifice. How then is a person saved? Does God require a different sacrifice? You said it's a sacrifice of the heart, but this text is very, very clear without the shedding of blood. And you know what the right answer is? There is a blood sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Messiah. It's not just a sacrifice that satisfies the past. It's not just a sacrifice that satisfies the present. It's not just a sacrifice that, that satisfies the future. You see, you're exactly right. It is. It has something to do with the heart and it has something to do with faith. But it isn't peace in your heart because there's no temple or there's no animal sacrifice. But it has to be the belief that there's a once and for all sacrifice that's acceptable to God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the declaration of the New Testament writers that Jesus' death is the satisfying solution to the problem of guilt and sin, blood, innocent blood, shed blood, applied blood. And so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus says, this is my blood. My blood that will be shed for you. The blood of the new and the everlasting testament which will be shed for the remission of sins. Salvation is always by blood and it's always by a person and it's always by grace. And so Paul writes in Titus 2.11 for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, unquote. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul notes, once again, what happens if a person wants to be saved but they can't bring themselves to believe in Jesus? What happens to a person who refuses or rejects the sacrifice of Jesus, the offer of grace? What if a person wants to come to God, but they refuse God's terms? What if a person is opposed to the kind of salvation that the Bible talks about that is free and undeserved and universal? What if a person says, no, I want a salvation that demands personal merit. I want a salvation that includes religious education and church membership and good works and religious rituals and keeping the law. 
What if a person wants a salvation that's based on living the golden rule of having a sincere heart, of giving when you can to the best of your ability? What if a person wants a salvation that says, look, I just want to be the best person that I can be, but I don't want Jesus, and I don't want grace, and I don't want sacrifice? You see, here's part of the challenge People don't simply reject the gospel because we're wired for hope. People who reject the gospel, they still want love and they still want forgiveness and they still want heaven instead of hell. And so the person doesn't simply reject the gospel, but they often fall prey to a false hope, a false gospel, a sinister substitute that masquerades as peace with God. Because you see, religious people are probably the most deceived of all in the whole world because they think that God will accept them on the basis of energy. I'll do what's right. Sincerity. I'll believe I'm right. Equity. I hope the scales of justice are balanced in my favor. Does does Paul really hope? Does he dare hope? Look what it says in verse 21. But to Israel he says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Remember, In my upcoming volume, Big Butts in the Bible, this verse will be included. But to Israel. Again, this is the adversative. This is in contrast. Remember, hundreds of thousands of Gentiles flocking to God, believing in Christ, embracing the the news of the gospel. Thousands of people coming forward, believing the truth about Jesus, loving him, experiencing grace, experiencing mercy. But to Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. You understand the image. Have you ever held your hands out just like that? You hold it out to your children or your grandchildren or to a family member or friend. This is a universal sign, isn't it? Come and get some sugar. (laughs) Come and get some love. But have you ever tried to do it for five minutes? Ten minutes? An hour? Eight hours? Twenty-four hours? We sing a song, don't we? Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. When Paul writes these words, he affirms both human responsibility and God's sovereignty, that God is faithful, that the Lord refuses, the Lord is refusing, the Lord refuses to give up on Israel. Think about what he's saying. God is patient. 
God is tender. God is kind. His arms are open. They are opened wide. It's not just the physical position, but a spiritual invitation and attitude. God is patient. God is patient. God's attitude towards Israel. And we might make a bold and sweeping application that God's patience towards Israel and towards the unbelieving nations is patience, 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 long-suffering, long-suffering, long-suffering. And so who is this attitude of patience extended to? Look what it says in the text, a disobedient and contrary people. Who are these people? The text tells you these are the people who refuse to be persuaded. I can't believe that. I can't believe that. Why can't you believe it? I'm a Jew. Jews don't believe that. As a matter of fact, Jews can believe anything or nothing. You can be an atheistic Jew. You can be a pantheistic Jew. You can be a philosophical materialist Jew. There's the one thing that a Jew can never be. A believer in Jesus. The moment you become a believer in Jesus, you cease to be a Jew. And you need to be able to tell the Jewish person, no, not only do you not cease to be a Jew, but now the fullest meaning of Jewishness becomes a reality in your life because the Jewish Messiah, given to the Jewish people, was a Jew. You don't cease to be a Jew when you become a Christian. I didn't cease to be an Italian person when I became a Christian. I still want to eat spaghetti and meatballs on Sunday afternoon. This is part of the point. These are the people who refuse to be persuaded. This is a willful attitude in spite of pleading, in spite of persuasion. And by the way, the word translated contrary is very interesting in the original language. It's anti-lego. Literally, anti-against. Lego or legeo, to speak against. It was used in the sense to contradict or to oppose or to resist. Goodspeed and Williams translate this disobedient and contrary as disobedient and obstinate. Another Bible translator translates this self-willed and fault-finding. What's God's attitude towards the person who is self-willed and constantly finding fault? You know, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, churches, they're just in it for the money. They can come up with every single answer that you can think of for refusing to believe, for refusing to embrace, for refusing to understand and accept that Jesus Christ is the Lord. How in the world do we face the titanic proportions of unbelief that occupy the human heart? What do you do with your unsaved family member or friend who is willful, obstinate, self-willed, fault-finding, and you get all frustrated, you need to remember the image that you need to see in your mind is a heavenly father with his arms stretched wide. I'm waiting. No. Love you. 
don't care. Willing to forgive you. So what? Willing to save you. Don't want to be saved. Waiting. Not waiting. But God is patient. God is merciful. God is patient and kind. And he's waiting. He's waiting. He's waiting to the very last moment. He's waiting to the very last moment to offer forgiveness and peace and reconciliation. He's pleading, pleading for Israel to return. In Ezekiel 33, 11, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Hosea 6.1, come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken. But he will bind us up. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. I'm begging you. Be reconciled to God. The moment that Paul can write and say. Be reconciled to God. The invitation is complete in the sense that will God be reconciled to me? Is he willing to forgive my sin? Is he willing to restore me? Is he willing to have me? The answer is yes. God's loving patience was met with disobedience. God's loving patience was met with a stubborn refusal to embrace and believe and receive Christ. Just remember, the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, the critic, they have no invisible means of support. And so you pray, Lord, thank you for being patient. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for holding out your arms of love. Thank you for issuing the invitation. Stop talking to me about Jesus. Haven't you ever understood that the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, the unbeliever is every bit as much as an evangelist as you are? You say, believe, trust Christ. They say, Don't believe, don't trust him. You're inviting them to do something and they're inviting you to do something. Don't believe, don't receive. Walk in rebellion and disobedience. They're urging you that your sin doesn't matter or at least it doesn't matter as as much to God as as you think that it does. That your estrangement from God doesn't matter. That your eternal destiny doesn't matter. That heaven and hell don't matter. The agnostic's prayer is, oh God, if there is a God, save my soul if I have one. But that isn't the prayer of repentance. 
The real prayer of repentance is there is a God who loves my soul, who sent his son. You see, unbelief doesn't cause sin. Sin causes unbelief. Well, preacher, I have my doubts. Of course you do. Doubt isn't always a sign that a man is wrong. It could be a sign that you're thinking. And that's a good thing. But every step, every step, every step that you take towards Christ, every step that you take towards those loving arms, every step that you walk in that direction, one doubt disappears and then another and then another as you're walking away from your sin and as you're walking to the Savior Every step towards Christ kills doubt. Charles Deem said, quote, Believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. Don't make the mistake of doubting your beliefs and believing your doubts. John Drummond put it this way, quote, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is can't believe. Unbelief is won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with the darkness. You see, it's one thing to have doubts. And it's another thing to be happy to live in darkness. You see the truth is we all have doubts. I doubt the world. I doubt myself. But I don't doubt God. You doubt God. And you trust yourself. And you trust this world. But Jesus said in Matthew 21, 21, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, if you have faith and not doubt, not only will you do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say this to the mountain, be lifted up and be thrown into the sea, it will be done. There's a kind of a faith that lifts the mountain of doubt and then presses the skepticism and unbelief and tosses it away. In chapter 9 and 10, Paul has taken us on a journey, a spiritual journey of Israel's past and present. Paul has said that it shouldn't come as a surprise to you. That the rebellion and the resistance by the Jew has made an opportunity, an unprecedented opportunity for the Gentile. Well, what about God's attitude towards, towards Israel? Read the end of the verse. His arms are open wide in patient love. He continues to call both Jew and Gentile to come to Christ. We may be tempted to criticize and judge the Jew for blindness and unbelief. But we would do well to thank God and the Jewish person for our Bible and our Savior. And that even though the Jew has stumbled and fallen, here's God's plan. 
I will pick you up. And I will put you on a pedestal of love and affection. And even though your family member, your husband, your wife, your child might stumble and fall. God wants to pick them up and place them on a pedestal. Remember, before we leave the chapter, let me just remind you of a couple of things that the the chapter teaches. Number one, salvation isn't difficult. Do you remember what we already read in verse 11? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's easy to do. To abandon the darkness and embrace the light and call on the name of Jesus. And number two, salvation is available to sinners. It's the word that convicts, the spirit that converts. Remember faith, remember faith comes by hearing. And remember, there's always been two religions. The Broadway and the narrow way. There's always been two ways to come to God. On his terms. Or on your terms. There's always been two religions. One with a lot of members. And one with only a few. There's always been two religions. One that's based on hope. And the other one that's based on a false hope. There's always been two religions. One is man-made. And the other one is revealed by God. And is based on grace and blood and a person. The person of Jesus Christ. We used to sing a song. There are two roads from which to choose. The road to glory or the fool's highway. There's two roads from which to choose. The rocky one or the Lord's new freeway. Please decide before the Lord descends. Sweet road to glory or the bitter end. You know what's interesting? When you come to the end of the chapter, you might think that Israel is done. As a matter of fact, W.H. Griffith Thomas says, quote, Blinded by pride, they endeavored to maintain their exclusive position by making permanent their law. They repelled with scorn the idea of free salvation, chapter 10, verses 5 through 11. Universal salvation, chapter 10, verses 12 through 17. They were absolutely without excuse, and God was only righteous in setting them on one side and offering salvation to the Gentiles. This is how the chapter closes, and by itself we might think that there's no further hope for Israel, but as we shall see, the next chapter proceeds to reveal God's method of mercy. Even for those who are obstinate and willful. You mean there is hope? Oh yes, there is hope. The whole chapter. 
is going to be about hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, what an amazing chapter. Believe your beliefs. Doubt your doubts. Don't make the mistake of doubting your beliefs and believing your doubts. Lord, we believe that salvation is by grace and we believe that salvation is in Christ and we believe that there is a sacrifice and a forgiveness that is so monumental that we keep bringing it up. We keep passing it on. Lord, we pray that when we get troubled, when our heart breaks as we see the rebellion and disobedience that takes place not only all around us, but by the people that we love the most and care the most about. Lord, we pray that you would give us that image, a clear picture of our Father with his arms open wide. The invitation is open and extended. That faith is available. And forgiveness is available. And grace is available. If we'll just simply ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.